Is this thing on? <clears throat> this is Artscape, an investigation into the artistic and cultural landscape of our region, with your hosts, Katie and Harold. For the next hour, we are going to take a journey through sound and storytelling. This podcast is brought to you by CFUV 101.9 FM, located on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen and Wasanic peoples, created with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. Join us as we uncover the people, happenings, and organizations that make up the artscape in which we live. Last time on Artscape. Education versus self-taught. That's the... No. No? That's not the conflict at hand. Institution versus self-taught. Which one do you think is the route to a successful arts career? You definitely, in no circumstance, need the institution. Hmm. And it's just a big, fat waste of money. Okay. Especially within art. I will take that argument and introduce you to my good friend, Bill Zook. Would you like some tea? Oh, oh no, I'm quite all right, thank you. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, So here I was, nestled in the cozy home of Bill Zook, Professor Emeritus of Art Education at the University of Victoria. This is part of the informal experience. This was nothing, I didn't, there were no courses that I took. You know, on, on, uh, in sculpture, there were no courses that I took in jewelry making. So the, this was part of that informal education mm-hmm. that uh, you know became quite important. Okay, well, this sort of ruins the whole trajectory of the episode because if everyone is self-taught to some degree, then okay, I, Katie, I just need to leave. This episode's kind but, of falling apart. Okay, it sounds no, pretty good. No, I think I'm just gonna go. What? I need to leave. But I'm leaving. Where? I, no, I gotta, no. So, are you an artist? Um, yeah, in a sense, I guess. Hey, are you an artist? Uh, yes. Hi there, are you an artist? Yes, I am an artist. I need to take some more space. Maybe I need to get off this island for a while. Maybe go to Vancouver. This is just something I gotta do. I'm not gonna rest till I show Katie and the rest of the world that art school is the way to go. I just know it is. I I feel it. So, Harold didn't, uh, show up for work today. I wonder where he is. I see, I see a note from him. Hmm. Dear Katie, I went to Vancouver to figure out this episode. I'm going to the CAGE conference. Be back soon. Hopefully. A Quest for Art Education, Episode 2. Ah, so I made it to Vancouver. Fresh ocean breeze in my nose. Well, it's nice to be out of the Victoria bubble. Now I need to get to the Vancouver Art Gallery for this cage symposium. for a fresh perspective on art education, one that supports my argument 
for formal education. Okay, let's see who I can talk to. So today we're at the Canadian Art Gallery Educator Symposium at the Vancouver Art Gallery. My name is Justin Langlois, and I'm an artist and educator in Vancouver. So at Emily Carr, I teach in the Social Practice and Community Engagement minor. And this was uh, actually the first program in the country to focus on social practice. Is there any way in which you are engaged with education in an informal context? So outside of Emily Carr, um, I, I started with a few of my grad students, this thing called the School for Eventual Vacancy. And uh, this is a kind of itinerant school that uh, runs like last summer it ran every week and uh, it's since run kind of like occasionally. But the goal is to uh, bring a small group of people together and try and share some um, sense of like leadership and, and direction to take up questions or ideas that maybe don't fit or there isn't the time within other educational structures to kind of take them up but are really foundational to maybe how we all um, might be approaching a particular subject. And a lot of it is reflexive insofar as I think we're trying to imagine and, and maybe model out like the type of institution that we would want to be a part of all the time. The School for Eventual Vacancy tries to uh, take up content that just doesn't have a, a place or a home anywhere else in like a formal, formal curriculum, but really ties into these underlying concerns that we have as contemporary practitioners, whether we're artists or designers or writers or activists in the community and this is about like yeah the capacity to make the thing that you need right and the capacity to not only make the thing you need but build into it the structures that might undo themselves because I think a lot of the, the challenges um, that we face I know this is a very broad statement but I think a lot of the challenges that maybe we collectively face are um, the assumption that things have to exist forever and that at some point the work that goes into maintaining those things kind of supersedes the the real um, necessity of what was there in the first place. So maybe really harshly like a, a university uh, just continues to exist for itself and not necessarily for the underlying purpose that it started as. So the School for Eventual Vacancy tries to say um, how do we make ourselves unnecessary? How do we build enough capacity amongst ourselves that we don't need to uh, keep meeting like this? Like we we can do it. We can like step away from this, and we can. And so it's a bit. It's kind of like a conceptual. It's just like a something on the horizon that you keep an eye on, and it helps. Um, I think it helps it from being this thing where it's like, oh yeah, why are we doing this? Because every time we come together, we say, well, we're doing this because we're trying to make it so that we don't have to do this anymore. We're trying to make it so we have capacity and we have the resources we need to do the kind of work that we want to do in the world. I see. Well, it all sounds like really pertinent subject matter. Why is there no time for this at Emily Carr or at the Vancouver Art Gallery or the other places you work? Uh, well, I mean, I th it's, um, I don't know that, uh, okay, so let me say it like this. I think that what happens in these other structures is that they have a much longer horizon or trajectory ahead of them, right? The ability to respond, you know, on like a weekly or monthly basis to something and not have it need to tie into a larger structure is really freeing, but also really hard to, I think, be support in larger institutions. So I don't think that this is a model necessarily for every university, but I think it's a way to um, to imagine how we could gather differently around the purpose of education, right? Where we're really, we're coming together out of a, a point of agreement and, and, and a 
affinity rather than um, kind of feeling like, well, I already paid my tuition, so I might as well show up, kind of thing, right? Can you give me an example of a subject that might be talked about in this free school, could we, could we call it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, yeah, free school makes sense as a kind of shorthand. I think that there are a lot of um, much more well-established and kind of well-functioning free schools and anarchist free schools that um, we would have a very remote sort of um, reference or affinity with. But so the most recent one we did was on a distance education and hidden curriculum. So these are very self-reflexive of the idea of an educational institution. So they looked at how um, certain values and power structures are embedded into like everyday life and everyday institutions. And, uh, and we kind of posited that, of course, that is a form of hidden curriculum, as well as the kind of values that get put into existing course structures and degree structures. But then we also imagine, like, well, what, would, what are the kinds of hidden curriculums or values or desires that we would want to put into the structures that we want to inhabit? And that kind of led to a discussion around um, distance education as being at once both something that is like a temporal distance, so you complete something and it goes away and it's evaluated or ever it comes back and you kind of accrue a set of credits to also something that talks about distance from the subject so a distance to um, to not only the, the thing that you're studying but like the possibility of distance being like a tool that you can use to like understand power being exerted upon you and how you in turn exert power upon other people so the underlying theme is that is a development of a certain style of resistance, I guess, but the, the, the aim of that resistance is not prescribed. Very neat. <laughs> What's the setting like? Uh, so the, the School for Eventual Vacancies sometimes meets uh, at Emily Carr in like a vacant classroom. Um, sometimes it meets at uh, some of the field houses that, that the city of Vancouver opens to artists. So we've met um, at the Contemporary Art Gallery's field house. We try to meet at places that are like convenient and sort of open, but it looks very much like an art. I mean, for as much as we say we're an art and design school that isn't interested in art and design education, I think we take on very familiar forms. Like, we meet around a big table, there are some texts that we take up, and, um, and there's some bit of, um, you know, kind of peripheral activities that are associated with it, but it's really about just trying to um, hold on to the the intensity of the idea or interest for as long as it's appropriate, not like towards some larger ambition of, you know, getting a degree or a course, I don't know. I think it's necessary that it exists alongside these other structures, but um, I also secretly, like, I would love to imagine that there's an institution that could be that all of the time. Well, quite liberating when it's not so goal-oriented. The School for Eventual Vacancy sounds like it's taking steps towards reimagining the entire notion of art education. It's an art school that has no interest in the current models of the art school. Well, this isn't helping give formal education any credit, but I know Katie will be happy to hear that it exists. I wonder who else I can find to speak to this question of formal versus informal art education. I'm Jean-Luc Murray, Director of Education and Public uh, Program, Community pro Program at the Montreal Museum of Fine Art. We're in Vancouver in a kind of a strange neighborhood, just beside an abandoned house. <laughs> and what do you think of this notion of formal art teacher in the 
art gallery situation. You see, we moved away from that because even the name educator or guides now uh, impose a kind of a notoriety posture. So we used uh, museum mediator now. So probably this association will have to question itself on the, its name as well, one of these days. I see. And so do you hire people with an art education background to do the mediation? We're more looking now for um, uh, someone with people skills and sets of values that will make them uh, competent for the type of job now museum uh, uh, offer. And uh, less and less of them came with art education or art history background because they have um, probably a sets of skills that are not now so useful in in museum of today i see so why not employ the art teacher to do the teaching of the art we already do that our main project like the numeric one we are we hired two teachers uh, one was work is working with uh, kids uh, at risk and the other one is a college teacher in art so they already have the all the pedagogical background, but they're already in co-creation, co-design kind of mode because they work with kids with uh, special needs as well. And it's working really well. At first, they had problem to adapt to the museum setting because they came in with all those ideas that were almost imposed on them by the way they were trained to fit the school uh, system. And working in the museum, they go back to the people's needs or the stu students' needs instead of the system needs. So it's kind of it was a process for them, but now it's pretty exciting because they have a lot of freedom and they can react, be creative. What sometimes what it was impossible in a school context. Mm. I see. Very interesting. Do you think that an artist needs a formal education to to be an artist? No, I don't think so. I worked in folk art museum and uh, a fine art museum, and when someone is a creator, you no matter what kind of training or background or experience he has, he can produce an artwork that is kind of a communication tool to reach another human being. So, inst even I, I'm art trained. I'm a painter by training. And I think it kind of ripped me off of some of my creative qualities as well. Because you, again, it's a process where you try to fit into a model. The school is bringing you there. And I think it will, now I have to, if I have to go back doing art, I will have to retrain myself. And again, in art history, all of this was a cycle. You know, those modern painters were trying to paint like kids, like uh, primitive and the primitive and the kids who are want to be artists as well so it's kind of a, a not a comfortable situation for anyone but i don't think you need specific training i'm surprised that the montreal museum of fine art is moving away from employing art educators to do their art teaching rather just looking for individuals with people skills well i suppose this sort of supports the informal path to art education John Luke also said that to be a good artist, you don't need art school. You just need to be able to successfully communicate through the medium you work with. Wow, well, Justin Langlois and Jean-Luc Murray have really brought up some fascinating alternatives to formal education, and they're definitely on the path to activating some real change. 
Hmm. Well, I guess I'm beginning to see things Katie's way. I'm always with you, Harry. Well, in that case, I suppose I need to go talk to someone who's never been to school. So far, I've only been talking to people who have been formally educated. Thus, my search here into formal versus informal education is really imbalanced. I need to talk to someone who made it through their arts career without any institutional influence whatsoever. Like, what happens if you don't go to school at all? I heard that Godfrey Stevens, a local legend living in Esquimalt, had done just that. I think I'm ready to go back to Victoria and see if I can track him down for an interview. Hey man, let's do something with our lives, eh? Something really unusually fantastic. You into it? But you can record everything as long as we you don't get it out in the public, the wrong thing. Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. Having your blank. It's pretty good. It's not Shiraz, but it'll work. Would you like a glass of wine, Harold? Oh, sure, thank you. Here. So you got it recorded. Great. Here you are, Harold. Um, could you introduce yourself? Just Well, I, my name's Godfrey, and uh, I like to call myself Godfrey rather than Godfrey Stevens or Godfrey Rupert Cripps Stevens because Vincent van Gogh signed all his paintings with his first name, and I thought that was really cool. He was, and oh, well, Picasso signed his last name, but yeah. Uh, ask me a question. <laughs> okay, so Godfrey Stevens, and I'm curious, could you describe where we're sitting right now, where we are? Well, I've, I've built many boats from on the beach to from wrecks to a brand new steel boat and lived on it for many years and smashed it up in Mexico on my second trip there and that was my floating studio. And uh, I had many, many different types of people come through my life rather than me going to a school, I went, made my own. And uh, the strange thing is with a person like me is I only went to about grade 8 and I've only been to Vic, Vic University a couple of times here that's days for a show at the Maltwood Gallery and uh, what else did I go there for oh yeah one day to learn some Chinook because I, I love the Chinook language the jargon language and, and you don't get your knuckles wrapped for not uh, knowing your grammar because there is no grammar in the language, it's a jargon. So let's rock. <laughs> so we're sitting in this, this boat here. Yeah. Um, seems like it's in process, it's something you're working mm -hmm. on. Can you tell me a little bit about the boat that we're sitting sure. on? Sure. Well, after having catamarans and, uh, and mono hulls and uh, the steel boat that I wrecked and it was very uh, a deep draft, and I love shallow draft because that means I can go where other boats can't go. I can go into a river mouth or launch it in a lake, but I wanted to sail. So uh, this particular boat was built in Southern California, sort of like a 1970s Westphalia-style family boat. But uh, what I liked about it was you can crank the keel up, and that means you can slide into knee-deep water. And uh, it was a derelict when I got it, 
I traded it for a bottle of tequila, and uh, my friend, the boat mover, who's also moved my bigger boat, so he knows that I'm serious. Uh, uh, he, he backed it in here, and I gave him a bottle of tequila for it. And he says, I don't know what you're going to do, but... So I ripped out what was here in the interior. There were no, no masks, no nothing with it. And in the last year, rather than spending huge energy on my artwork, I thought I'd make this into a piece of artwork that I can use. And uh, if any of you ever come here and visit me, if I'm in Haida Gwaii or Mexico or even in the backyard where it is right now, <laughs> Harold and I are yakking away and he can see my bench here and it's all already looks like it's about 150 years old. <laughs> and I'm making cubby holes everywhere. I can store my paint and I just reach. The beautiful thing about a small studio is, especially a boat, is that the whole world becomes your studio. I've got the key to the highway. And the beach is a fantastic place to set your easel up or just sit on a log and draw pictures. And if you come across a lovely piece of uh, teak, even, or sequoia root, or western red cedar, or yellow cedar, or unusual woods, and you have some good tools to uh, carve with, there's your supply of neat stuff. It's sort of free. You don't have to go... <clears throat> making a whole lot of money to pay rent in some garret somewhere when you got a boat that's filled with light. So I'm trying to make my life constantly at 76 years old keep going uh, as uh, I always have, only because I'm older now, I'd like a lighter boat and that's what this is all about. I can have it hauled onto a trailer and dump it in a lake or into the ocean at Tofino and hang out for a few weeks and do my painting and carving. Cool. So we're pretty close to the water right now where we're situated. A couple blocks. Yeah. The, the ocean is just over there, is it? Yeah. How, yeah. how far of a walk would you say to the water from here? Oh, four minutes, five minutes. What body of water is it? It's Victoria Harbor. Mm. Yeah. And so right, living right on the ocean, pretty much. Pretty well, yeah. Is that an, a reminder to you of uh, your desire to get out there on the water? Well, it reminds me <coughs> of all the marvelous places I've been by sea. And I want to go and be where there are no wheels for miles. And that's a, 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 an achievement that's very hard to do nowadays. And there's tens of thousands of miles of uh, ocean front property in BC and what better way to see it than anchoring in a, an abalone cave. If you look at some bay, bays, they're shaped just like an abalone, like this abalone shell. That's California. They don't grow this big here. But you could sail right in here and row your dinghy up to this little beach and uh, look at all the driftwood and everything and no footprints. There's cougars and wolves footprints and there's a whale out there. And I put my little radio, transistor radio on my ear and listen to all the crap that's going on out there. Ah, there's Cape by the Ocean. 
awesome. So aside from your desire to want to get out there on the water and explore, are you feeling content in here, living here in Esquimalt? Yeah. Comfortable? I, I love Esquimalt. Did you ever go to art school of any kind? Were you ever an art student? Uh, I went to the Sorbonne in Paris, and they were going to enroll me there a bit, but they wanted a lot of money, so I said, and I and, and had nowhere to stay. I was just on the road, so I kept going. Um, I've never gone to art school, no. I've gone in there uh, to look at what people were doing, and I was so jealous of all the materials they had, but it's I'm, I'm not an institutional person. I can't think like that. Like, uh, organized it, organized stuff. You got to be somewhere at a certain time. I, I'm way worse at this time in my life. I can't. I don't even know what day it is today, and I don't really care. But other people care, and other people have deadlines, and uh, I, I can't make my life around their deadlines. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, how my artwork and whatever I make with my hands comes out because it's not restricted but in some ways it should be restricted I don't have the discipline to carry things right through so you get a lot of half-assed pieces and uh, I think this is poignant to what you're asking hmm. <laughs> well it's quite, it's quite honest and humble of you to say but all your pieces to me in my eyes are so extraordinary did you have mentors or teachers that taught you art my mother, Gwen, she was my main teacher and my critic. I was, she was very critical of anatomy. It had to be better than most. And she was, uh, well, I could go on forever about mentors because, and I, I usually get the same kind of publicity if I ever speak about Mungo Martin being a, a mentor one of the greatest, of course, that these people went into my spirit and stayed there, and they'll always be there. There's n this is unshakable. I was a contemporary with, you know, John Coltrane and these great musicians. They were, I, I did say at one time that I learned a lot of my art from listening to jazz, uh, cosmic jazz, not, not, uh, uh, lounge music, <laughs> nothing to do with that stuff. I mean, the real heavy, uh, off-the-top jazz. And these musicians were my teachers, I'd say. I'd say, God, if only I could paint like that. And when I'm painting, sometimes I'd be painting and listening to the music, and of course, just the vibrations going through my hand into the paint, and the wiggle of the paint would be part of the music. And uh, for sure, for sure, I... Those were influences beyond belief. Music definitely goes right through us, permeates everything. Or when you speak of the cosmic jazz, could you give me one example? Oh, um, not all of Mingus, but uh, God, Mingus's drummer and uh, uh, Nika's tempo with uh, Nika's dream by Blakey and the Jazz Messengers and uh, Bird Calls. That's a good one by Mingus. Listen to that, it turned way up. 
what accomplishments throughout your arts career are you most proud of? Um, that word proud is kind of egocentric. Uh, I don't want to come off as an egotist. And I look at nearly all of my work and I see where it could be a lot better. You asked me my greatest uh, accomplishment. I think was building some boats more than... But I, I made my artwork with great inspiration, but also I had my eye on getting some money for it so I could build boats, because you can't just get a boat for nothing. You, and especially if you don't have hardly any dough, you have to build it yourself. <clears throat> I think the press building carvings, there's parts of those, that would be a, a, an achievement. I carved those in one year. And by the time I finished them, I was broke. It cost me the amount of money they gave me for them to build them. Although I partied hard during that time, that was 1972. The year of 72 I, was a huge accomplishment time for me because as I was building those two sculptures that are in Victoria Press building on Douglas Street, it, I eventually, when I was about 14 years old, I met Mungo Martin, and that was it, in Thunderbird Park. He was carving right next to the Tilikum, the big uh, canoe that sailed around the world in 1901. That was totally fascinating, too. And Mungo was carving the killer whale before the, his, the big house was there in Thunderbird Park. And I'd say that was uh, when that's all I wanted to do. I want to carve and paint and draw. And that was it. I've never done anything else since, except travel and groove lit to music and have a hell of a lot of fun and run down beaches and okay so if you never had any art teachers you never went to art school your mom influenced you but then you didn't go to any kind of art school oh i how the hell did you learn how to carve okay can i speak yeah okay uh when you say i didn't have any art teachers no everyone is my art teacher every single one uh what not to draw that person something oh god i'd never do it like that or Oh, I'd love to imitate those colors. Some of those lines. God, if I could just get that. I'll even try and copy some of those lines. And I realized, now why the hell is that painting famous? Why is that thing worth $50 million? A Picasso or something. And then I'd try and paint something like it. And I see why. It's hammered home. Why is that so valuable? And man, when you suddenly realize what it is, you're on your knee. I kept asking him how he learned his art. I was getting very stern as I needed to know the truth about his educational background. He eventually gave me a good, simple answer, an important answer. So you had art teachers, that was everyone that you met, people that you talked to, everything inspired you, all that stuff. How did you actually figure out how to carve and how to paint? By doing it. And that was it. There was no arduous school assignments, student fees, or proving to anyone else anything. He simply learned by doing it. It started with cartoons on cars when I was uh, on the road, hitchhiking around everywhere. I, I was on the street for many years, and I would do cartoons and caricatures on cars. Flame work, flames, I, you know, in southern states. and. I'd come to Victoria and hang out with people and they'd let me sleep in their car if I did a painting on it. And we just partied and like it never ended. And uh, I used car paint 
or anything that would stick. I still use anything that sticks. Do you think art can be taught? Yeah, uh, yeah, no, yeah, no, uh, uh, no, and yes. I think you can be taught to appreciate it. You can, and the whys and wherefores, you know, how they did it and ground their own paint. And Do you think uh, there's any benefit in getting trained in the arts? Yes, definitely. But I don't think that should be your whole goal. I don't think you should spend all your time in schools. I think get out there. The, the temple is the forest and the beaches. That's the holy, holy temple. The rest made by man is just some other kind of stuff. What would you say are the benefits of going to art school, or being formally trained in arts in some way? Uh, you know, I've never gone there, so I don't know, but I, I see that discipline is very important. Okay, so have you ever received an arts grant before? Never. I've never had a grant, and I've applied many, many, many times, and I would sure like one because I have a lot of work to finish. I'm 76. I still have all my faculties, I think. And I have uh, a sculpture in the backyard that has 500 guns in it. I haven't touched it for about five years because I can't get funding to do it. I can't afford to hire people to work for me on that. So I'm spending the little bit of money that I get on my old age pension on my boats because that's what I need to as a, a mobile studio. Are you happy where art is taking you? No, not really, because uh, it seems like uh, there. I've gotten a lot of uh, interest lately through the book and everything, but no real working capital. I need working capital right now, and if it doesn't come to me very soon, because every time I sell a painting, I sold a painting recently, and a, a carving, uh, I got $1,500 for it. That money's gone, and I've spent it on my boat. If I had more money, and I know lots of people who have tons of dough, and they're just so tight with it, they've got to let some of it go to the art, the real artists of Canada, not the uh, uh, these school kind of guys that only do it on weekends. I mean, people who live it all the time. I have a few friends that do that. And they're frustrated, too, because, you know, to go out and sell your work, to make more of your work, that's what I've been doing all my life. I won't do that anymore. I'm I'm fed up with the... I, get, I sell a painting for a couple of thousand dollars, and I have to spend that money buying materials for the next painting or the next carving. And, well, if I was a commercial artist, I could have lots of dough to work with. I'm not frivolous. I buy a bottle of wine once in a while. What's that? Well, this is you know? this episode is about art, formal education versus self-taught. I think uh, both have their places, but if you've been formally educated, sometimes you a lot went by you while you were deep in the books. I think a, a lot of art is living. You gotta go out there and touch it. Well, at 76 years old, here was Godfrey Stevens, still fully engaged in his art, living a lifestyle different than anyone else I had ever met. But he too faces immense challenges. While a formal education may have been helpful in providing financial stability, his life has been so rich in other ways. It's been a life of adventure, one on the water and land, 
swimming forever in a world of imagination and wonder. Godfrey admits that he's missing the discipline that a formal education may have provided. However, in my eyes, he possesses a superior discipline in comparison to most dedicated academics. He gave his entire life to his art, and that's all he's ever done. Hmm. Well, I should probably go back to work and check in with Katie. You showed up to work. Yeah, haven't seen you in a while or heard from you. What's, uh, what's been going on? Well, I've been on a quest, Katie. A quest for art education. Well, how was Vancouver? Did you get any interviews? Yes, I got a few, and you'll be happy to know that they all support your argument. And as a result, I'm starting to feel like art education is a big sham. And my whole career is a sham. Come on, Harold. It's not a sham. What are you talking about, Katie? You're the one who told me formal education was bogus. I just... I just really don't know what to think anymore. How am I supposed to walk into a classroom now and not feel like I'm wasting everyone's time? I don't know. I think this whole episode was kind of a bad idea for me. I'm just really exhausted after that whole trip. Can I... Can I go home early? Ah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Okay, thank you. Maybe I should just try and see things from Harold's perspective a bit more. Harold has often talked about one of his favorite art teachers, Regan Rasmussen, who really instilled a lot of passion in him during his art teacher education. I should go and speak to her and learn a bit more about the benefits of formal education. My name's Regan Rasmussen and my involvement in art. Since I was a little girl, I was an artist, I knew that because I was forever mucking about, playing about with anything I could make marks with or make shapes with or make forms with. I've taught most recently at the University of Victoria for about the past 16 years. And I've also taught um, in various public school settings with uh, students, probably kindergarten to grade 12. So it's a beautiful connection because it's art, whether I'm doing the art or whether vicariously I'm living the art through and with my students. Harold and I have kind of had a, a, a little bit of a, a healthy debate through, um, we both kind of took a stance and decided like, I will prove that, you know, being a self-taught artist is the way to go. And he set out to prove that like, going through the institutions and, uh, you know, getting a, an education in art is the way to go. So I thought um, we could talk to you and kind of explore the spectrum of both of those kind of ways of knowing and experiencing art. 
Well, I think you're both coming at it from interesting perspectives, but I don't think that one is right or correct or better than the other, because that's kind of implying that it's a binary, which it isn't, because anything to do with art is in that beautiful middle gray zone. And so I suppose it comes down to the way we define art and the way we define artists and the way we define process and intent. So a long time ago, historically, there was you know, the idea, the notion of high art, low art, craft versus fine art, and all of that kind of nonsense, which I think is it's great that now the distinctions have blurred. Fundamentally, we can go back further to our ancestry, way back to the time of early humans. And as David Suzuki has so adeptly stated, maybe not in these exact words, the thing that separates the human species from all other species is our innate desire to create and to make art. So I think again it comes down to the definition of what that art is. Is that art um, a graphic representation of, you know, simply taking a stick on a beach and making marks? Is it um, making joyful sounds as all children do? in which the Kodai program of music was based on the, the lilting sounds of children at play. Is it about um, kinetic movement through space? And again, you watch children and they joyfully move through space and play, or you can watch, you know, Cirque du Soleil, artistry, or you can look at a performance art piece. Is it art that's um, telling stories on a stage or in a movie theater? So I think that what's happened is the definition of art in and of itself has broadened, which enables us all as human beings to fund fundamentally find a way into the arts. Maybe for some more participatory than others, um, but that I think sometimes is a choice of one's own passion or desire, or sometimes it can be maybe brought to fruition through an, a mentor or somebody that helps to um, bring out that inner artist maybe that gets buried. Children are spontaneous artists in all of those areas, whether they're you know play acting, they're dancing, they're singing, they're making making art, they're making things. And they're very joyful and uninhibited. And about maybe grade four developmentally there's a an individual who did research, Lowenfeld, and he talked about the stages of creative development and growth. And if children are allowed to kind of pursue whatever it is they want to express themselves through in the arts, that will grow, it will continue to, to expand and be explored through process. Unfortunately, sometimes the school system suppresses that if students um, when they decide they want to at that stage, when they're, let's say, about nine, ten, want to, for example, make things look more real or they start to care more about appearances or being right. That's the downside, I think, of the institutional part of learning. Unless there are really effective mentors, caring mentors that can allow them those spaces to continue to explore and take those creative risks without kind of fear of failure, but just process, joyful expression, that kind of thing. So I teach within 
the Faculty of Education, um, the Arts and Education in Curriculum and Instruction. So we have studio courses where um, undergrad, stu undergrad students, or in the case of you know some master students, go through a program um, in arts education. I work with the undergraduates in both studio and curriculum um, programs. So the curriculum programs are intended for students who know that they're artists of you know they've known that and they want to teach art the studio programs that we offer are really um, open to students across disciplines at UVic which is really a beautiful thing because what I alluded to earlier about often uh, children or adolescents youth young adults even not having had a chance to develop their creative potential simply because there wasn't the opportunity or there wasn't the mentorship. That passion, perhaps, I, I, I say it's like the inner critic and, and we develop that inner critic in life, whether it's about creating art or doing a lot of things. And uh, especially for introverted uh, people, I think it's sometimes difficult for them to put themselves out in a way that's going to, through the arts, often be again taking those creative risks so the beautiful thing about the interdisciplinary disciplinary cross-disciplinary opportunities for undergrad students is that they may be studying science they may be studying business they may be studying mathematics but as an elective they elect to take some of the studio art programs whether that be drawing that be painting um, ceramics sculpture photography media arts and the beautiful thing in that is sometimes there will be uh, visual arts students that will take those classes. So it's a wonderful mix of students who know that art's important to them, know their process a little bit more, with the students who need to have that inner critic quell quelled and they need to be offered those opportunities almost as we just offer children free playtime, but with enough structure to feel success. So it's quite, quite amazing um, as an instructor to see how there's a reciprocal learning that takes place between and amongst the students, those who have perhaps more experience in studio arts, those that are new to it, so I guess if the idea is that we're all in this together and we're learning together, then it allows for uh, building a relationship of trust, first of all, first and foremost. And then within that relationship of trust in the dynamic of the studio, gaining more trust in our, ourselves or the students themselves to play a game, to unleash their creative potential, that inner artist, and to sort of that inner critic out the, you know leave it out outside the studio door and they get even over the course of a 12 week period to uh, have a magical transformation occur and rarely I don't think I've ever ever had a student who hasn't by the end of the course and I can speak for the, the other instructors I work with who hasn't you know had an a feeling of joyful discovery at some point along the way and that's very gratifying it's grat gratifying for an instructor to see and it's gratifying for the student to see and we celebrate everybody's accomplishments I think the only thing that I'd add further is that in legitimizing the arts 
in a curricular sense. There's always been a need for advocacy, and there still is an ever more important need for advocacy, because the research tells us how important it is to every student's in, in education and for their intellectual creative growth to have arts courses, you know, from the time they start into institutionalized learning. It happens in play school and kindergarten beautifully, but somehow we lose sight of it when we, you know, get to the point in the school system where timetables and schedules start to dictate choices. But the payoff is, uh, you know, the question that some parents will have uh, that every artist or mentor or teacher needs to be able to answer is, well, why is it important that my, my child take this instead of another language or another science? Well, again, knowing where to direct people to, to find out where the literature, the research supports the importance of it. You know, you could go to many, many, many uh, different sources and, and discover in statistical terms, if that's what some people need to see in order to say it's okay for my son or daughter. Yes, they should take that art class or that drama class or something. But the dividends pay off if they're looking down the line at employability because what does the future workplace look like? It looks very different than it's looked up to any point in this time. So we're, we are preparing students for an unknown. We are preparing students to be able to deal with a lot of complexities. They have to work together. They have to be diverse, flexible, creative problem solvers. So perhaps somebody goes through, has an MBA, and is in a job interview or applying to medicine. This is another good example. What is the committee looking for? They're looking for a well-rounded individual, not just somebody whose GPA is sky high, not somebody who has taken you know, a plethora of all of these classes and the extra academics. It's how does this person connect in different ways to humanity? How does this person work collaboratively? How does this person, what has this person done? And how can this person solve problems? And every art form does that us work through creative problem solving and possibilities of the unknown and that's basically the world the future that these kids are going out to they're going to have to solve a lot of the problems that we've created and so they need art and they need to have those opportunities to play understand the complexities those vulnerabilities and trust and and work through thank you that was perfect I Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you, Katie. Well, after talking to Regan, I feel like we actually, I can't believe I'm going to say this, we really do need formal art education. After talking to Godfrey, I'm beginning to see things the way Katie does, but I do have one last hope to restore my faith in formal education. Yesman Post a friend and art educator who has always been frank with me and always given me a wider, more radical scope on things. I think I should go and talk to her before I admit to Katie. <laughs> that formal education is useless. I'm Yasmin Post. I'm a PhD grad student at, at UVEC. 
just passed my candidacy, yay! So I'm ABD, all but dissertation. A couple more years at this game and I should be done. Um, how am I associated to art education? Well, I did a degree at the Ontario College of Art back when the uh, police became famous in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. When I graduated, Thatcher and Mulroney and Reagan were ruling the world, so it wasn't really too good in the, in the West for artists. So off I went to Europe and lived in Spain for 15 years. And that was how I first got involved in education. So the art came first and then the education. And I taught English for 12 years. And I kept get, getting all these great job offers that I couldn't take without a bachelor in education. So I decided to come back to Canada, although I'm originally from Toronto, and do my BED at UVic. And then I got a $33,000 scholarship to do a master's. And so I stayed. And that was the first time I combined my art with education. And I did my thesis work in my master's on the history of art education in British Columbia. But oddly enough, so now in my PhD, I'm coming back to studio work and arts-based research as opposed to history. So my thesis will be a combo. So how is art education specifically? Oddly enough, it's funny, my father was a musician and he ended up in music education. So it's funny that I should end up go from art to art education and kind of like follow in his footsteps a bit but I think maybe it's normal and natural if you're involved in any art of any of the arts to kind of end up in education in a, to a certain extent because education is a way of being able to share your experiences in the arts. I see and so you know quite a bit about the history of art education in BC do you think that we've done a pretty good job? Well we started out being excellent drawers and draftsmen because the province needed to build roads and ships and it got into the whole um, trade era um, in its early days. So that's the main reason why art was compulsory in the schooling to begin with, but it was drawing. It wasn't like uh, the progressive art of, say, someone like John Dewey in the 20s, right? So. It was very formal. Um, it was almost taught like a language, so that when children were finished school, which would have been grade eight then, if you were lucky, they would come out knowing how to be expert drawers, expert draftsmen. Um, and then as time went on and art got more expressive, it got pushed more to the peripheries because it wasn't seen as useful. And I think now, teachers are coming back around to the idea that it is useful because it is expressive. So things have evolved a lot over time, whereby use was utilitarian, expression was useless, and now we're finding that expression in and of itself is useful. So mm. we may start seeing art becoming less and less of a frill, but I think for the status quo and our neoliberal democracy, it's dangerous. Expressing oneself and art is dangerous. So I think that's all part another reason why it's pushed to the frills. Hmm. Pushed to the margins, let's just say.
Katie and I have been talking to lots of different speakers, okay, about the best path to art education, trying to figure out what is the right path. <clears throat> the right path. Ooh, that's scary. The right path. Well, I don't think there really is one right path. I think people come to it from, from all different angles. You know, they could be influenced by someone in their family, or they could be influenced by an artist per se, or they could just want to find a, a place for themselves to express themselves. Um, you know, some people have formal training and some people just pick it up on their own. So I think there's like multiple paths. You know, often we talk about a teacher or an individual that's inspired us in some way. And I think that propels people the most. But it doesn't necessarily have to be an, uh, somebody who's inspiring you to do art. Or it doesn't have to be necessarily somebody you follow. For example, you could be rebelling against something that's going on and you find yourself inspired to do art to speak to that. So it could be someone you don't admire doing something you don't uh, approve of and your way of combating that or offsetting that would be to express yourself visually. So, you know, art can be a very dangerous thing for people who want to keep things the same. Mm. So you think that, that art school is a good thing then for people that want to make some change in this world? I think it is, but I think also it depends what art school you're going to. So even when, back in the day when I went to the Ontario College of Art, even within the college, there were kind of different factions, different ideas, different political motivations. So say commercial design where the students were studying to go into advertising and sell all the consumer goods and promote our concepts of consumption and capitalism. They were a very different crowd of, of young people than those in experimental art or uh, photography, etc. So. You know, even within an art college or an art school, you can have all different factions. And it's kind of good, too, because we bounce off each other, right? So you I think you kind of want that. You don't want people being the same. And there's a danger of, of it being the same. You know, if all artists are radical activists, then they're going to peg us that way and that's a great way for us to become discredited so you do want to have all different kinds of art yes even the art that sells garbage and sells coca-cola and running shoes and whatever else they're selling you kind of want it all because it keeps up the comparative so that nobody can you know belittle or discredit art and say oh yeah there they go again, those artists, those activists, right? Because some artists are doing nature drawings and some artists are designers and some artists are doing commercial advertising. So hmm. I think we need it all. I think we need it all and, and uh, you know, to come up with a lot of innovative and multifaceted ideas, right? So... I think across Canada, there's all different kinds of 
art education, right? So you have the colleges, you have it in the public schools, you have different departments in the universities, um, and you have people who are doing interdisciplinary projects where they're mixing, you know, microbiology with art, mathematics with art, science with art, physical education with art. It's amazing. In the 21st century, uh, the whole postmodern idea of bricolage and the mixing of interdisciplinary work has become, uh, has flourished in the 21st century. So that's an interesting thing too, right? So what made you pick a formal path through your arts education? Formal path? Do you mean because I'm linked to uh, to post-secondary education? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess really, I mean, I just fell into it, really. I mean, I, I originally came here to do a Bachelor of Ed and ended up with the scholarship to do a Master's and kind of couldn't turn it down and then got a full tuition scholarship to do a doctoral degree. So I've, I've been more or less taking up opportunity rather than the formalist sentiment of a post-secondary I feel really more at home in places like, say, the Victoria College of Art or the Ontario College of Art, as it was. It's become a different place than it was when I was there, which are smaller communities and and where there's more open discussion and open studio, etc. But I think I just landed here uh, opportunity-wise. Harold! Katie! I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you, too. I can see it the way you do now. I can see it the way you do, too. Well, I went and talked to Regan about the reasons for advocating for art education, and she helped me realize that no matter the person, we need people to be creative thinkers in order to deal with the problems in our world. That's so right. Yeah, and I went and talked to Godfrey Stevens, an amazing self-taught artist, and I see now the major advantages of not being institutionalized, but rather being uninhibited. It really comes out in the spirit of his art and lifestyle. Regan helped me realize that where arts courses become especially valuable for those who don't have art in their life and are curious to find out new ways of knowing. Let's say you're in math or in the sciences. You too can have an opportunity within UVic to delve into the unknown, creating more interdisciplinary ways to approach learning. That's so true. I can't believe you're saying this. Well, Katie, while I was in Vancouver, I spoke with Justin Langlois about this new kind of art school called the School for Eventual Vacancy. And get this, Katie. What? It's free. Oh, my God. The school is looking at all new ways to approach the art school model. And it got me thinking about how we learn and teach and the many forms it can take. That is so cool. It sounds like an art project in and of itself. Right? And I heard your interview with Jean-Luc. When you're at the Cage Symposium, you don't need to be formally educated to be an artist. He felt ripped off. I can mirror his sentiment. Anyways, what really intrigued me is how he has people come in and teach at the gallery without formal education. Right. But the thing is, in order to be put in that position of power as director of education and community programs, he needed a formal art education background to start making those changes in the first place. Wow, I can't believe you're admitting that. 
I just spoke with Yesman Post, who took the formal education route based on opportunity alone. She simply just got a bunch of scholarships along the way, and those scholarships didn't come to, you know, Godfrey Stevens. However, Godfrey did get his beautiful sailboat for just a bottle of tequila. So it just shows that, you know, not everyone's going to get the same opportunities. That's amazing. So basically, we're all unique as a fingerprint. Every artist is on a different path. Like Yasmin was saying, we don't want everyone being the same. We need all kinds of artists. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be interesting if we were all institutionalized or if we were all radical activists. We would be just discredited. Yeah. It's true, we need it all. Well, I have to say, this episode really didn't go the way I thought it would, Katie. Ah, <sighs> look at all the stuff we learned. We had a plan, and it failed. Amazing. I love failing. Harold, do you feel more educated about education? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. I, it's like the whole process has been inadvertently educating us. Did you learn by doing? Like what Godfrey did? I guess so, yeah. That's right. Well, we're at the end of a two-part quest. Harold, you should have the last word. Do you have a recipe for the ultimate mode of art education? Hmm. A recipe. Yes, I do. Formal or informal. It doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is an arts career is not easy. Whatever route you take, there will be struggles. But through it all, what you need is openness and focus. You need the openness to spot an opportunity when it comes your way, and you need the continual focus to stay on your arch journey and do what you do, whatever it is.